Analyzing now. Stand clear. Shock advised. Push to shock. Komið þið sæl og velkomin í bráðavarpið. Eins og þið vitið að þá er bráðavarpið á ráðstöfninni á vakt fyrir Ísland sem haldin er af landsambandi slökkvilis og sjúkraflindingamanna og hinga til okkar er komin Brad Newberry sem hélt fyrirlestur hérna í dag á degi tvö á námstöfninni sem að bara titilinn erfiðar ákvaranir. Nú ætlum við að skipta þér í ensku og eins og þið vitið þá er enska mín frábær eða þannig og hérna því verður bara að reyna að lifa það af að hlusta á þetta en brata allar eins að fara yfir það með okkur hvernig fyrirlesturinn hans var og aðeins kemur hann svo inn á skólan sem hann rekur í bostan í bandarginu Brad, welcome to the show Well, thank you very much, it's a true honor to be here with you It's a great pleasure to have you here in Iceland First off Let's start with the lecture that you had here in the conference this morning. Uh, what is it being a leader? Or what would you call your lecture? Well, this morning we talked about um, making high-level decisions in extremis. When, mm -hmm. when you are uh, under stress during uh, high-consequence um, events, like emergency scenes that we all respond to, mm -hmm. and then how do y you as an individual, you as a leader, make these decisions and we really dug into the science behind mm -hmm. um, how we, we do that. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but decisions. What are decisions? How are they made? Who are supposed to make decisions if we, if we uh, focus on the emergency setting? Well, uh, I think we make decisions every day, yeah. right? And every, every day that we get up, we go to work, we drive our vehicle, you're making these decisions unconsciously. Mm-hmm because you've done them before, you've experienced them. And, and each one of these uh, decisions that you make on a daily basis, most of them have no or little consequences. It's during the high value events, like a medical emergency or a fire, mm -hmm. where individuals, whether it be the EMT, the paramedic, the firefighter, the, the captain, whoever is there, everyone makes decisions. Everyone has to be a leader in, in, at their level of the organization. And it's key that they understand that the decisions that they make have consequences. Mm -hmm. So there's really, there's a lot of research behind how we do make decisions, especially in extremis. And when I say extremis, meaning that your time is of the essence. You have to make a decision. You have to make it now. And lives are on the line. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> Gary Klein in his work came up with a, a model of recognition prime decision-making. And in his work, what he really found is that he went out and he studied fire ground commanders. Mm -hmm. and, and he understood that uh, these, these fire ground commanders were basing decisions mostly on intuition as well as um, their, their past experiences. Mm -hmm. So they, they see something, like however the smoke is moving in a building or where the fire is located, 
how much uh, um, as the as uh, so they have this problem, and and then once they've they recognize that problem, so they get oriented to it, and they recognize it because they've seen it in the past. They've been to hundreds of fires or thousands, especially in Klein's work. He looked at uh, fire ground commanders in in the cities, in major cities, in in the, in the 1980s, in the mid 1980s, when when uh, the American Fire Service saw saw you know lots and lots of fires mm-hmm. um and <clears throat> these were hardened battlefield commanders on the fire ground mm-hmm. so they had all these different experiences and every time they went to a fire every time they went to an incident it wasn't just fires it was ma- major medical mcis hazmat incidents they would gain an experience mm-hmm. so that the next call that they went to that had similarities they would use those experiences to make high level decisions truly without really thinking and pondering or taking time uh, to think about, well, what should we do? Mm-hmm. They have to act. Mm-hmm. And that was the basis of, of what we really discussed today is, is you know, this two, two types of decisions, intuitive, where that's really driven by your experiences and your gut, mm-hmm. and then analytical, mm-hmm. when you have discretionary time, when you can sit back, you can, can think about the problem, maybe gain some advice from others, mm-hmm. and, and then make a decision mm-hmm. and then act. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're an extremist and you have to make a, a high-level decision now, you, you don't have that discretionary time. No, exactly. Um, <clears throat> you talked about uh, 10,000 hours of, of training to being able to uh, make high-level decisions, as you talk about uh, many fires or, or many sick patients that pe- we are meeting. Um, is there anything else that has to be added to the uh, what you call it the the whole thing uh, in order to get the right results at at, at all times? Is, uh, are there any things that we uh, might not be uh, or see uh, or recognizing at at any given time? Um, quite hard to <laughs> put this in words. Well, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, and, and Malcolm Gladwell is the, the psychologist who uh, I reference in, in mm-hmm. the talk today. We, and he, um, as in his research, he found that it takes about 10,000 hours mm-hmm. uh, to become an expert mm-hmm. in what you do. And, and, you know, we've seen that number, you know, some people would dispute that number based on, um, you know, it's if you have a lot more experiences and, and you work in a, let's just say you, you're a busy, you're a paramedic who's in a very busy system mm-hmm. um, or a firefighter in a very busy system, you're going to gain experiences quicker because you're going to go to more calls, more uh, uh, emergencies. And, and the more uh, experiences you have, then the quicker that you will gain those experiences. And, and really, that's where that kind of 10,000-hour rule came from. And, and Malcolm Gladwell really unpacks that in his book. And, uh, and I would suggest, if, if you want more information, uh, the best book to read from uh, Gladwell is it's called Blink. Okay. And <clears throat> when we think about individuals as they make those decisions, mm-hmm. you know, experience, I've always taught, is like a slideshow in your mind. And you've, it's been imprinted. And, and one thing about experiences, they're visceral. Mm-hmm. Because you, 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 I would love, you know, I, I've been a, a paramedic now for 32 years and a firefighter for 36 years. And I've have, uh, you know, worked in very busy systems and, and gained some great experiences. And I would love to be able to take a USB drive mm-hmm. and kind of plug it into my brain yeah. and, and, and then share those experiences with others. Mm-hmm. 
However, to truly have an experience, mm-hmm. it's visceral. Yeah. You have to feel it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So the emotions that surround that is really what imprints that neurally on your mind. Mm-hmm. So later on, when you need to recall that information, you, you're very quickly, you, you know this experience because you've lived it, you felt it, you smelled it. Mm-hmm. Things that, that uh, everything, the totality of the experience mm-hmm. will come rushing back and mm-hmm. then help you make decisions about how, you know, what you see right now. And then, you know, what's the problem? Why is it happening? Mm-hmm. And then understand what can we do about it based yep. on past experiences. <laughs> and it's, it's not a perfect system, by the way. And, we, we, and you were kind of referencing that there are going to be times when you don't have an experience um, that you can rely on. Mm-hmm. And, but you may have other experiences that are very similar. So you have to bring the totality of those experiences together and try to shape and model and then kind of predict what's going to happen mm-hmm. um, if you act a certain way. Mm-hmm. You said in your lecture that over 80% of all decisions that are taken during a, a, an extremist time are taken by gut. Um, is there any reason for why, uh, you know, you said also that that we have gut versus brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we, we have to have some training as well to combine it with, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in, in what you're referencing is in, in Gary Klein's work, mm-hmm. um, he came up with that recognition prime decision-making model. Mm-hmm. And, and what he found in his studies was that about 80% of people, when they have to make high-level decisions without discretionary time, when time is of the essence, they use intuition based on their past experiences about 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and what he found in his work was that Um, those individuals uh, who could make those high-level decisions were that experience mattered, mm-hmm. right? You can have knowledge, skill, education, but it really takes the, the experience to bring all of that together um, and make those connections so that you can make high-level decisions later on mm-hmm. w- when, when you need to, when, when, when lives are on the line. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is for... for uh for us to being able to take this decision at uh, any given moment that we have another set of eyes for example you you talked about you know if i stand over here and i look at these three or three what you call the cabinets and you see four mm. uh, how important do you think that is that we consult with the, our colleagues uh, and stuff like that during uh, uh, if if it's possible obviously uh, how important is that i think that information gathering mm-hmm is crucial mm-hmm. and and i showed a video during our uh during the lecture mm-hmm. a, of a apartment fire that i had responded to and the first in engine company and we saw the interaction between the the uh, engine lieutenant and the firefighter or the smoke divers you call them mm-hmm. and and first as the as the uh firefighter had exited the the truck The first thing he did was there were some residents who were in that building. He was gathering information very quickly. He, he started asking questions to the people that were there. Mm-hmm. And as the lieutenant was, you know, giving a size up on the radio, he's still sitting inside the vehicle, the, that firefighter was already out gathering information. And then, based on that, the lieutenant and the firefighter had some interactive discussion before they even made any, you know, real decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and that... That really helped that company officer, that lieutenant, 
to make the next decision about what should we do here. Mm-hmm. And, and it was very crucial in that operation that they, they figured out where the fire was, lo- where the location of the fire was, not to stretch the hose line until they actually um, figured out where they were going to do that, do, yeah. a, re- do yeah. a recon of the area. And yeah. so going back to your should we consult, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that sometimes it's when you have discretionary time, then consulting is fine. Mm-hmm. However, I think naturally what occurs in emergency scenes is that individuals, even if they're not in that top-level leadership position, will begin to gather information mm-hmm. and make decisions for themselves, but also keep the incident commander informed. And, and, and to me, I want all the information to make good, good decisions. I say that to, to my firefighters, my company officers, because uh, I work as a shift commander mm-hmm. uh, in my department. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's important that you do take some of that feedback. Um, and, and there's time for um, some of that feedback, even if it's what you see visually, gathering information, whether you call and, and get a report from, say, the rear of the building or the Charlie side of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you taking in information? And then listening to what's going on on the fire ground, listening to what's going on, even when it comes to patient care. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we, in my department, we send uh, five people minimum sometimes six, mm-hmm. to, to all medical calls. Okay. Uh, so an engine and ambulance respond yeah, to, yeah. A, uh, to a report of someone having chest pain. Mm-hmm. And as, the, as the, the, you know, the paramedics that are assigned to the ambulance, they arrive, the engine company could be there first or maybe they're not, depending on the geographic location. But as, as uh, 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 the, you know, the team is there and they're evaluating the patient and they're functioning as a team. Mm-hmm. There might be one leader, though, mm-hmm. not, and, and, and in that respect, our company officers, our lieutenants, are not the, the, you know, they're the positional leader for safety, but the paramedics who are assigned to the ambulance are in charge of patient care, mm-hmm. and they're taking information in from, from everyone. They're using their team. They're asking for blood pressure. They're asking for someone to put the monitor on. Someone else is starting an IV, mm-hmm. and they're functioning as a leader, mm-hmm. and, and, and there are many times when you know, we have multiple providers on scene. And, and some provider will say, hey, Brad, did you see this? Mm-hmm. And that's my critical clue to, to take in information from that individual. Mm-hmm. When, when things are moving very, very quickly and there's a life to be saved, let's, let's just say, you know, uh, there's a rescue to be made. There's people hanging out the windows. Mm-hmm. Generally, you know, people who are in, in all up and down the chain of the organization, people know their job. Mm-hmm. Right? And I put a slide in there, do your job, ignore the noise. And the reason I, I put that there was because, um, you know, it's a, it's a great uh, uh, reference to our, our uh, Patriot football coach, Bill Belichick. It's mm-hmm. his favorite line. Um, but I think it's important even in, in high-level decision-making that, that people don't get caught up mm-hmm. in the moment. Mm-hmm. Do your job. You know, if, if, if the incident commander is going to need or the leader is going to need feedback, provide the feedback. Mm-hmm. But those also, too, you have to be willing to accept mm-hmm. that I see that, but I still want you to do this and move on. Yeah, yeah. It's important. Okay. Um, so if, if we should sum up, take home message for the crowd that's listening, what would it be? Be a student of decision making. All right. I think that... Um, Many times we go about our day and our lives, and I'm, I've been a student of the fire service, a student of, of uh, EMS mm-hmm. uh, my whole career. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, you know, I have that unquenched thirst for knowledge when it comes to 
understanding why things happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's important if we can understand the reasons why we make certain decisions as well as uh, how we make those decisions. And even if you're doing it unconsciously in the very beginning, it also help you later on reflect back and, and codify the information mm-hmm. and, then, and, and the experience that you just have truly learn from it. So I think if I could give anyone any advice, it'd be be a student of your profession. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> okay. Um, I would also like to ask you a bit about your school that you have in the States. You're the owner, right? I am. You yes. are. Yes. All right. Uh, it's a, I, uh, because the fire surface isn't enough, mm-hmm. I, I, I've been uh, teaching uh, paramedics since 2004. Okay. And I was a lead instructor in, um, in, at a different school and... And really um, have a passion for teaching mm-hmm. and education, All right. because I think it's important to be able to pass on knowledge to the next generation. That's a, that's a great course. Um, your school is called National Medical Education and Training Center, and it's located in Boston, right? It's just south of Boston. Just We're about Boston. 25 miles south of Boston in a town called West Bridgewater. Okay. And um, we opened that school in 2010. Okay. And... Um, so we started uh, offering, even back then, um, both traditional classroom um, classes as well as a hybrid online uh, EMT and paramedic program. Mm-hmm. And actually, I developed that program at a different school um, and in 2007. Mm-hmm. In 2007, 2008, we, we ran, you know, it seems like everybody's online now, but in 2007, no one had an online program. Well. And, and it really came to me because I had a young woman who um, had, was a single mom with five children and her husband had left her and didn't support her and her children. And, um, and, but she really wanted to be a paramedic. And she came to me during a continuing education class and asked me if there was any way th- that it was possible that she could do this um, without coming to class. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, she had such passion for taking care of people and I really thought about her problem. I remember that night I drove home and I had about a 45-minute ride home and I was really thinking about this problem. And as I pulled in, uh, I came into my house and my wife, who is now a, a nurse and a nurse practitioner, was sitting at the computer um, studying her, for her, her bachelor's in, in nursing. Okay. And, and I thought to myself, like, if we're training nurses this way, why can't we do this for paramedics? Exactly. But there was no paramedic program like that in the country. And, and I really thought that, you know, a, as an educator, I really had to put something meaningful together. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And we also had to get our state uh, in Massachusetts. We're governed by the Department of Health for Education for EMS providers. And I had to get the State Department of Health um, approval to mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. And so I had went on a whole journey for about a year yeah. to figure out how to do this. And uh, I was able to get a virtual classroom and, uh, and a learning management system. And I built out the learning management system. Mm-hmm. And I made a presentation to our Department of Health. And they really bought in they they said you know they they really said this okay this seems innovative and let's do it okay so i actually did uh 2006 uh, 2007 2008 um were our first local programs 2009 uh, to the end of 2008 people started from around the country Mm -hmm. started finding us and and actually international students started finding our website Mm -hmm. and started asking can we attend and to be honest i didn't know (laughs) so i had to go back to our department of health and say is this okay Mm -hmm. and 
and I got the approval to do it. We put, you know, systems in place to manage it. And they asked me, you know, a whole bunch of questions like, how are you going to manage that? How do you know that, you know, little Johnny in Alaska is going to be the person sitting at the computer taking those exams? Mm -hmm. And to be honest, we really didn't. However, when students come to us for their skills training, because they can do the didactic portion, Mm -hmm. all the education stuff online. Mm -hmm. So that takes about 11 months. Mm -hmm. And then once they're done with that, then they come to us for skills training at our campus. Mm -hmm. And when they, they spend 12 days with us for skills training, and then um, they have to take a proctored uh, computer-based written exam mm-hmm. and prove they have the knowledge. Yeah. Right? So um, we had really good checks and balances in place. All right. And we have phenomenal success for, for our students. Great. And now it's been, you know, I opened our school in 2010, and it's 2000, you know, 2021 mm-hmm. now. And um, 11 years, we've had... Just amazing, amazing students, amazing success. And I studied the program academically. For my thesis in grad school, mm-hmm. when I was in graduate school, I, I, studied the, I did a comparative analysis between campus students' successes and mm-hmm. our online students. Okay. And what we found was that our hybrid students were beating, hands down, our campus students. Oh, really? And I think there's a lot of different reasons why, mm-hmm. you know, especially since... For many of the folks that we have that come to our school from distances don't have a lot of options mm-hmm. for education, for paramedic-level education. Mm-hmm. So their commitment to that, they know this is their only shot, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you're coming from Iceland and you're mm-hmm. coming to, to, uh, to Boston area to do education, you do not want to fail that, no. right? So <laughs> the commitment to studying, to mm-hmm. education, and, and we see that our hybrid students do, you know, better and and which was interesting because our we have above 95 percent first time pass rate for the national registry certification exam okay. for all of our students we continue this mm-hmm. and the when we really looked at it from an academic standpoint because if that's the the metrics that we're using to measure success then even our campus students are still are still mm-hmm. doing really well mm-hmm. so we really i had to walk back and look at a, a, a we use a the hesse exam which is a um their final exam and then we had to really look at the outcomes of that mm-hmm. to kind of tease out the campus versus hybrid mm-hmm. but at the end of the day we actually make a guarantee which is something that's not, you never see this. If you finish our program, and, and yes, people attrition along the way because of academics or life gets in the way or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. but if you finish our program, we guarantee that you will pass the National Registry exam. All right. And if you take the National Registry exam in the allotted time and you, did, and you don't pass, mm-hmm. you can come back to school for free. Oh, really? All right. And, it, and, and you know, yeah. it, it's... It doesn't happen, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? So we, we know that, but it, you know, because we have a lot of not only uh, the education, but all the rigors of paramedic school that, you're, that students would go through mm-hmm. to get to that point, mm-hmm. they're going to pass. We have a 100% pass rate all right. uh, at the end of the day. You've had a couple of Icelanders going through school, right? We've oh, had several, several of them. Several yes, of them, yes several of them for yeah. sure. Are they doing fine or excellent? Excellent. That's good to hear. <laughs> uh, we some of our best students, and not I'm not really. saying that just because I, I would say that hey, we have challenge, but yeah. but um, you know there, uh, I think there's a, a a lot of different reasons. One, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. under the microscope here, mm-hmm. and and they they chose a different program, a different platform than what had been done in the past, mm-hmm. and um, and the and you know all of a sudden you know there's 
I think anytime you see a change or there's a difference, especially in fire and EMS, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing is everyone's guard is up. Yeah. You know, is this legit? Mm-hmm. You know, the, and, and, you know, there are programs out there mm-hmm. that, um, that don't have the same commitment to the education that we do. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm committed to not only the education here in Iceland, but also at home. Mm-hmm. I'm a true stakeholder mm-hmm. in the education that we deliver at our school. Yeah. And so are you. And mm-hmm. so is anybody listening here. Because yeah. any one of our students could show up at your house yeah, exactly. and take care of your family. Yeah, yeah. And former graduates of our program have taken care of my mom, okay. my dad, both my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my mm-hmm. son was critically sick at home. Okay. One of our graduates came to my house to take care of my son. All right. Um, so when I say I'm a stakeholder, I, I truly mean that. Yeah, and, yeah. and see, to me, patient care matters. Mm-hmm. And the education that we deliver at our school mm-hmm. really matters. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about the individual gaining the, the education. Mm-hmm. It's about the people that we're going to take care of. Mm-hmm. How do you reg- register for your, for your school? Where to apply and stuff like that? You can find our <laughs> website at www.nmetc.com. Yeah. All right. I'm guessing you're gonna have some applicants from Iceland after this interview. <laughs> we we have. <laughs> uh, well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us here in Pralavarpith. Easy, no, easy name for you to pronounce, right? Say it one more time. Pralavarpith. Pralavarpith. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, until next time. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.